I'm Kate Howard. I'm the managing editor of the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, which is an investigative reporting team in Louisville, Kentucky, that's part of the NPR affiliate, WFPL News. Uh, and uh, we are uh, excited to be here to talk a little bit about some of the reporting that we've done uh, into 21st century policing, into the Louisville Metro Police Department, uh, as well as where we think that we're headed. So I'm going to turn it over to Claire Roth, WFPL host. Hi there. My name is Claire Roth. I'm a news editor at WFPL, which is part of Louisville Public Media, the news station part of it. And we have two amazing journalists who have covered LMPD pretty extensively with us here on the call today. I'm going to start with my colleague, Amina, and then Eleanor, I'd appreciate it if you introduced yourself. Amina, go ahead. Thanks, Claire. Hi, I'm Amna Elahi. I'm the city editor at WFPL. But before this, I was the city reporter here. And I led uh, a lot of the coverage on the Breonna Taylor case last year, as well as coverage of LMPD. Um, and worked with Eleanor quite a bit on that, as well as the other uh, amazing reporters in our shop who keep up with what's happening day to day, as well as what's happening on a deeper level. So Eleanor, now to you. Hi all, um, this is Eleanor Klibanoff. I am the reporter and host of DIG, the, a podcast that the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting put out along with Newsy, um, looking into um, basically Louisville's promises of reform um, to their police department over the last, well, over about a period of about five years, uh, bringing us up to uh, the Breonna Taylor case and um, Louisville sort of being in the national news, uh, not as a model for reform as they hope to be, but as a model of um, you know what can go wrong when cities don't uh, carry through on those reform promises. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I want to remind everybody that you can join the conversation. You have to click the speaker button in the bottom left of the spaces window. As we go along, we'll get you into the conversation. We also have some links at the top of this conversation, like how to listen to DIG and how to support our work here at Louisville Public Media and, of course, the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. All of that said, Eleanor, as you just said, you know, the Louisville Metro Police Department made a pretty specific promise back in 2016, a range of promises. Can you tell us what those were? Yeah, absolutely. So it actually is like much bigger than just Louisville. So after um, the police shooting uh, or the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, the Obama administration came out with this like list of recommendations to uh, help police departments sort of fix this real gap of trust between communities of color and police departments. And it was called 21st century policing. And it was all about like, you know, transparency and trust and accountability and community policing, working with the communities that are most heavily policed uh, to sort of like what this like uh, term co-produce public safety. And Louisville got on board very early and um, started making a lot of promises, you know, that they were going to involve the community more in how they policed. They were going to, you know, find ways to uh, really execute on this vision of 21st century policing that uh, President Obama had put out. Um, and as a result of these big promises, uh, you know, the Obama administration took notice, the Department of Justice took notice, and Louisville was really on the national stage promoting these reform promises. Well, and and that feels somewhat ironic in hindsight, because as you mentioned in your intro, Louisville is now known for something quite different, right? We're known nationally for the death of Breonna Taylor at the hands of police. So 
from 2016, you know, to 2020, what failed in the execution of that promise? Um, a lot. Um, and I can give you sort of the highlights. I, I will say like the podcast is definitely, if people are interested in like the in-depth unpacking of where it all went wrong, um, there's a lot more in there. But big picture, it really comes down to a police department and a city and city leadership that spent more time sort of talking about these big promises and making these big promises than actually doing sort of the hard work of executing on them. Um, we interviewed, I mean, so many people in the city and so many people again and again use the same term where they would talk about that what Louisville did was checkbox reform, right? And we actually got a copy of these uh, workbooks that Louisville made where they was like these color-coded spreadsheets where they listed out all the reforms they were going to do and all the ways they were going to sort of turn these big ideas into action. And they checked off a lot of them. I mean, they documented hundreds of reforms in just 18 months. But a lot of people we talked to said, you know, that's not really how you fix a police department. It's not a hundred little things. It's like fundamentally fixing like the one or two big problems, namely this massive gap of distrust between communities of color and the police department. Yeah, and in interviews, senior level city and LMPD officials conceded that they failed to properly train officers on some of these new policies, right? Or, or check in on whether those policies were working. That's exactly right. Yeah, we interviewed um, Michael Sullivan, who was the, at, at that time, back in 2015, 2016, he was the deputy chief at LMPD. Uh, he is now at the Baltimore Police Department. We should say that LMPD um, did not give us an interview. So we don't have an interview with current LMPD leadership. But Sol uh, uh, Deputy Chief Sullivan was there at the time. And he said, you know, he didn't feel like there was a strong accountability system in place to ensure that, you know, these trainings were translating into action on the ground. Um, and one of the main things they found was like, or that he worried about is that you only like the only things that would come to light are the massive failures, right? When there's like a huge scandal, but that's just the tip of the iceberg as he described it. There's a lot more issues that you might want to know about that maybe don't rise to the level of a news article. Um, but if you knew about them early, you could root them out. And the department just was not doing enough to find out if that stuff was happening. Can you give an example of, of what one of those small issues might be? Yeah, I mean, I think that like, it's a lot of this stuff that we think about. So a, a really good example, and this is like sort of a big picture thing, but it goes to the little thing, is Louisville claimed for years to have this system called an early warning system. And criminal justice experts sort of agree that this can be one of the most effective tools to root out misconduct in police departments. And basically what it is, is like a system where it tracks officer activity. And if an officer has like a certain number of concerning incidents in a certain period of time, it notifies their supervisor. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, I mean, I think we could all think of examples like this in our own jobs where you might have a, a number of small issues that aren't enough that your manager would get involved. But on a, if you looked at the pattern, you might think, well, like that person needs more training or maybe there's something going on in their personal life. And when you think about policing and like the situations we're putting police officers in every day, I mean, often life or death situations for the police officer, for the people they're interacting with, there's firearms involved. There's, you know, uh, often very, very high stress situations. Like you wanna know as soon as possible if there's a young officer who needs more training or, you know, a veteran officer who maybe like, you know, is like 
you know, slower than they used to be or something like that. So Louisville claimed for years to have this system. I mean, publicly, they claimed it in internal documents. They claimed it in these 21st century policing workbooks. They claimed it. And then when, after Breonna Taylor was killed, they came out at this press conference announcing the settlement, $12 million settlement, the largest settlement in city history. And it wasn't just $12 million. They promised all these reforms they were gonna do as a result of this settlement. And one of them was they were going to implement an early warning system, which you know, so many people were like, we thought you already had one of these, but they had never actually activated it. So that's like, I think an example of both the, the small and the big ways that they broke some of these promises. If I could just, this is Amina, if I could just jump in to respond to that. Eleanor, this reminds me a lot of some of the other things that you covered and, and, the, and that we've covered about LMPD and the city sort of promising things and maybe trying the same tactics or the same strategies over and over. The most recent example I can think of is the Civilian Review Board, which um, Louisville created a new one after the killing of Rihanna Taylor. It was promised by uh, Mayor Greg Fisher. Um, and now there's uh, the city has just announced that they've chosen someone to be an inspector general for the first time. But this has happened before. Police officers have killed Black people before, and Louisville has responded by creating a civilian review board. Um, the issue is that that civilian review board hasn't really had teeth. Um, repeatedly, the, um, the city has tried to get subpoena power um, for that board from the state, and repeatedly it's failed to do so. So I think it's just an example, um, building on what you just said, Eleanor, of uh, not just these repeated promises, but kind of, you know, the same attempts over and over. Um, so I just wanted to add that, Eleanor, I don't know if you have anything more you want to share on that, but it, it really reminds me of the, the civilian review board example as well. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fantastic point. And like, I think one of the, you know, uh, sort of starkest things I experienced in, uh, in, in working on this project, but not just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you experienced this as well, covering the Breonna Taylor shooting is how many people you talk to, you know, like sort of community elders can tell you about when Louisville like, looked like this with protests in the street over a black person killed at the hands of Louisville police before. I mean, there was a, a huge, you know, thing between like 2001 and 2003, where a couple of young black men were killed by Louisville police, and they made a lot of these same promises. There was like, you know, Louisville has been the site of a lot of like civil rights activity going back to, you know, the 50s and 60s, like, this isn't new. None of this is new. And I think a lot of people, young and old, are very frustrated by what feels like sort of the cyclical nature of a lot of this. Just one more thing on that point. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. And, and I know that this conversation is focused on policing and not to, to zoom out too much. But this is this is sort of the nature of Louisville to some respect as well. You know, um, this is a very segregated city racially. Um, and particularly when you think about how the city has spoken to and made promises to the the west end of Louisville, where so many um, of our black residents live, it is um, concerning to see that that same pattern of repeated promises and similar promises seems to be uh, to uh, to be sort of reflected in how we handle policing as well. And I will just say to that, that um, obviously we're here talking about DIG, but Amina did, and a team at WFPL did a fantastic podcast that about the West End of Louisville, which if you're not familiar with Louisville is, you know, the historically black uh, 
I mean, and in Louisville, a very segregated city, the predominantly black area of the city, a great podcast called Here Today that's looking at how like the city's promises are and are not playing out and the impact that they're having on the West End. So if you're interested in Louisville or just interested in like gentrification issues broadly, I highly recommend. If you're just joining us, I'm Claire Roth with Louisville Public Media with me. Amina Alahi and Eleanor Klibanoff, both who have deeply reported on the Louisville Metro Police Department. Eleanor is the reporter and host of DIG, which is about what's next in policing in cities like Louisville and what's happened here with 21st century policing. You can join by clicking the speaker button in the bottom left of the spaces window. We'll try to get you into the conversation that way. We also have some links at the top of this conversation on how to listen to the podcast and support our work here at Louisville Public Media. And before we just took this quick break, we were talking about the cyclical nature of some of these promises and of um, kind of these broad strokes of uh, police brutality and and ensuing protest. Amina, something you mentioned was this concept of trying to get subpoena power, for instance, from the state. Do you see any other big institutional factors that are limiting actual progress on this, either on a city level or on a larger level? And I, I guess I'll start with Amina there. Yeah, big institutional factors. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think Eleanor's reporting with the dig really shows that um, the institution itself may be the issue, right? Um, to some extent, like the desire to actually deliver on the promises that it makes. Um, I think that's a factor. Uh, also, you know, I, I'm a journalist, so it, it would be, <laughs> um, I, I would I would be lying if I didn't say that some of the transparency issues around the police department um, are, are, you know, they seem to me to be factors as well. Uh, Eleanor mentioned that current police leadership did not speak to her um, or, or the people she was reporting with for um, this, this major project, um, which, you know, it's, it's concerning. Um, and we have seen um, time and time again, uh, you know, I don't know if I can say secrecy. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying secrecy. But, you know, this this lack of openness, shall we say, you know, there's a, I can give you an example of, you know, LMPD is the focus of a Department of Justice pattern and practice um, investigation right now. It was announced this spring and is underway. And um, LMPD has created uh, sort of a landing page with some uh, frequently asked questions, a little bit of detail. So it's like, okay, we're telling you a little bit about what's going on, but you know, we as the press don't really have many opportunities to actually ask them questions about what's really going on, what what really is happening here. And so, um, you know, when you ask about institutional issues, that's that's where my mind goes immediately. Eleanor, yeah, I mean, I think everything I'm going to just said is spot on. Um, I would also point to, I mean, I think the state legislature, I mean, sort of the state legislature also just like some like state laws that exist are like always, uh, I think like a main, uh, this is sort of broader than policing reform. I think that um, there's been a lot of attention. Louisville is facing, uh, you know, a homicide crisis. I mean, just like uh, numbers of homicides and gun um, violence incidents unlike anything the city has ever seen and I think there's a lot of consternation on the city level about trying to get the state to crack down on gun laws and that's causing a lot of issues um, and then I think the other institution that a lot of people feel like is a barrier to reform in Louisville 
and across the country is the police union, or at least like the union contract that uh, governs a lot of things, but including, you know, how police officers are paid and how they are disciplined. And um, the we did a lot of reporting. I mean, if you look at the podcast, like episode four is really about the impact of the police union on uh, these issues around discipline. It's really complicated. It's like, I think more complicated than I realized when I got into the reporting on the role the police union plays. Um, and a lot of what we found is like, the contract is really limiting to the department in how they can discipline officers, but the workarounds to that contract that the police department has relied on are also really problematic. So it's like sort of this like cycle of problems. And um, one of the main things we found, and I'm gonna talk about how this is working currently, but the salaries at the Louisville Metro Police Department have been kept extremely low. And I mean, I, I know like there's a lot of feelings around how we fund policing, how much we pay police officers, what we pay to other services. But just like when you look at the sheer numbers of what police officers in Louisville are being paid compared to similar cities like Cincinnati or Nashville, Indianapolis, officers were making, I mean, I, I, I personally was very surprised by how little they were making. I believe before they got a raise last summer, it was like starting salaries like $38,000 a year. It's like and your investigation range. found it had not been keeping up with inflation, right? Exactly, right. I mean, it, it basically, so then like last summer or summer 2020 during the protests over the killing of Breonna Taylor, they gave officers a raise as part of like this short-term contract. And that raise, which was a pretty significant raise, brought them up to what an officer, a starting officer in 2004 would have been making if you take inflation into account. So the pay is really out of whack. The disciplinary processes are kind of out of whack. And that is both the police union and, um, and how the city has cho chosen to work with the police union. I just want to add one thing about pay and why that's really important for the people uh, who live and are policed by live in this community and policed by LMPD uh, is uh, the lower your pay is as a police department, the less choosy you can be about who you hire. Uh, and uh, Eleanor spoke with several police officers who talked about the necessity of overtime. And when police officers are working overtime, that means that they are working, um, you know, very, very, very long shifts, not getting enough sleep. Uh, and, and all of this, as you can imagine, has an effect on the way that they police and the way that they interact with uh, with the people that they're policing. So it is in, in that roundabout way really important for the for the quality of interactions between police and the community as well. That's Kate Howard with the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. I'm Claire Roth with Louisville Public Media. Right now, we're talking about 21st century policing and more specifically, DIG, the podcast that delved into a promise that the Louisville Metro Police Department made to reform that ultimately fell short. Eleanor Klibanoff is the host and reporter of that podcast, and Amina Alahi is also with us. She's the city editor, former city reporter at Louisville Public Media. And Amina, before I just took that quick break, we were talking about police contracts, and some of the reforms that protesters called for were in the contract. That's being renegotiated right now, isn't it? That's right. In fact, we had an update on that just this week uh, where the rank and file officers and sergeants uh, ratified a new contract um, through their union. 
they had rejected it earlier because they wanted, um, among other things, more money. And um, so now uh, the Metro Council, which is our, you know, known as City Council and other places, um, has the opportunity to approve a contract um, for, you know, every police officer uh, and LMPD. The interesting thing is um, that uh, unlike the um, the officers, uh, the rank and file folks rejected the, the previous contract offer, went back to the negotiating table. And we found out this week that the, um, the contract that they, you know, subsequently approved was exactly the same as what was proposed before, um, except that the pay raise that they get in the second year is going to be higher. Um, so that means that they're getting a 9% pay raise in the first year, which is retroactive to this you know, past July when the fiscal year started. And starting next July, which is the final year of the contract, they would get a 6% increase, whereas previously they had been offered a 3% pay increase. Um, just in terms of what that means for people who are not um, you know, robots is that a starting salary for a police officer next summer would be uh, a little more than $52,000, whereas right now it's closer to $45,000. Um, this has not been approved by Metro Council yet, but it probably will be. What's interesting about this is that when when this contract went back to the negotiating table, some um, activists who have been very vocal about the nature of the police contract uh, were hopeful that it would mean, you know, okay, maybe, you know, maybe the officers will get something, but maybe the city will ask for something more in terms of accountability measures or some other reforms. Um, and that and that didn't happen. And I think it uh, definitely disappointed some people, including one activist who told us that to give them more money without asking for anything else seems like a negotiating 101 failure. That's Amina Alahi, city editor and city reporter here at WFBL, Louisville Public Media. We're talking about 21st century policing with a few folks here at Louisville Public Media, including myself and Claire Roth, the news editor here. And we also want to hear from you. You can click on the speaker button in the bottom left of the spaces window as we go along to add your comments. Right now we have Raphael, I believe. Raphael, we're going to unmute you. It might take a moment. Be patient. But then we'd love to hear what, what you have to say. Hello. Can Hello. you hear me? Yes. Okay. My question is very simple. And I have to say thank you guys for, for, having, uh, for having a debate like this. And just to tell you, uh, I was a Marine. And after I got out of the Marines, I joined the National Guard and I became a military police. I went to the police academy, and this is, we're talking about 2000. Guys, since the first day I am in that academy, I said, oh my God, something is wrong. And for the love of God, I don't know why we are having all this debate, but people never asked to see the transcript of one of those police academy. And if I got one demand, and I'm glad I got that opportunity because I'm talking to people who are super qualified like you guys, please one day try to get the academy, the, 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 the transcript of what these people are teaching those police officers. This is where the problem is. I am telling you, in the Marine Corps, they teach you when you are in boot camp, they teach you how to be, how to be rest, respectful of Geneva Convention, how to treat the enemy with respect, dignity, follow order, discipline in the police academy. Guys, I'm telling you, 
what they're teaching these people is pretty much go out there and do whatever you want. And to finish, after every lesson, one of the DD, DD is something that everybody everybody repeat, you know, like, I don't know how to describe it. And one of the thing is, what is the most important for you guys? Oh, to come back to our loved one. I'm like, what does that mean? Come back to our loved ones. So who are the, who's the enemy? Because all they see is the people, the public is the enemy. They are the good guys. And this is one thing everybody needs to sit down. The same way we do with race, we get rid of every comment, everything that we feel that is president, that is prejudicial by nature. We get rid of it. You cannot say that every racial threat, gay threat. We need to come back with the police and get rid of that nonsense that they are special. They are you are not special. You are law enforcement enforcer. The citizen of the whatever country, the citizen said, we all don't want to carry guns. We don't want that. We don't want that nonsense. So we select a few. We give you all the power for you to regulate. That's all. That's Raphael, what I give you there. Thank you. Thank you so much for that comment. Um, this is Eleanor Klibanoff. Um, and your perspective as a, you know someone who's been through one of these trainings, I think that's a, a spot on observation about the training. Um, it's the recruitment and the training of like, who are we getting into these training academies and, and what, are we, what are we teaching um, once people are in, in, in these academies? And particularly what you mentioned about sort of, um, you know, uh, this idea of, you know, sort of uh, one of the big ideas of 21st century policing is about training officers to operate with a guardian mentality rather than a warrior mentality. And this is really based on this idea, exactly what you're saying about like, if you think about, you know, I'm here to uh, like defend my community as a warrior versus I'm here to protect my community. And it's a, that's a really fine line and distinction. And we did discover some changes that Louisville police made to their training to sort of reflect this guardian mentality. I will say that, you know, that was, they started that training five or six years ago now. And so many police officers that we interviewed said very matter of factly, you know, even after going through these trainings, even after this change of mentality for Louisville, they said, you know, I am a guardian for my community by being a warrior. So I think it's safe to say like that mentality shift did not really translate. And I think this is a thing, you know, that police departments across the country are uh, struggling with. Um, we've done a lot of reporting and other news outlets in Kentucky have done a lot of reporting about um, the Kentucky State Police, which had, um, it was discovered by actually by a group of uh, student journalists at Manual High School here, that their training, you know, really emphasized this warrior mentality and quoted from, um, oh, and I don't want to get this wrong, and Amina, you might be able to correct me, but like quoted from uh, Nazi propaganda and quoted from um, a lot of like Confederate propaganda. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of this sort of mentality, I think, in policing. We talked to a lot of experts who talked about this idea of like, demilitarizing the police training and um, sort of removing this warrior mentality, but it really does start with the, with the training and with the recruitment as well, which Kate alluded to. Amina, did you want to follow up there? I did. Thank you. Uh, I think um, 
Another interesting and important aspect of this is sort of the community's trust that this training, um, that this mentality that um, police are expected to have is um, is appropriate and, and is uh, really what they need, right? Um, and in, of course, many cities, Louisville is not the only one, there is a lot of strain um, between the communities, particularly communities of color and especially black communities and the police. Um, the interesting thing in Louisville is that we have, um, uh, you know, something concrete to point to that sort of uh, focuses on um, that exact relationship or, or perhaps lack thereof, which is an external review done by a firm called Hillard Heinz, which is based out of Chicago. Um, Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher ordered this audit last year, and it um, it found, among other things, that LMPD's relationship with the Black community is, quote, deeply strained. Um, it's a 105-page report, and this is one of the principal findings, is that um, the exact language they use is that LMPD and communities across the Louisville metro area are in crisis. The department needs to make major changes, some of them immediately. This report came out in January. A lot has happened since then. We have a new police chief um, uh, who, who had been in the job for a couple weeks prior to this. Um, you know, as we talked about sort of the contract negotiations and those sorts of things, that's happened. Eleanor mentioned the, just the soaring, devastating homicide rate in this city. Um, and, and yet, you know, here we are. There's still this basic truth that LMPD's relationship with the Black community is deeply strained. And it's not clear um, at this point whether any of the changes that the department is making is, uh, are satisfactory for, for addressing that. If you're just joining us, we're talking about 20th century policing with Amina Alahi, the city editor for Louisville Public Media, Kate Howard, head of the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, and Eleanor Klebanoff, the reporter and host of Dig, which looked at 20th century, 21st century policing, excuse me, in Louisville. And when we're talking about the rifts between Black people in Louisville and the LMPD, I think we have to talk about David McAtee, which is a name that is not as nationally known as Breonna Taylor's. Uh, Eleanor, can you tell us briefly about, about McAtee? Yeah, um, you know, David McAtee is sort of the through line of the podcast, um, at Dig season two, um, because it's such a like heartbreaking and salient case of what we're talking about here. Uh, David McAtee was just like this beloved community figure in Louisville's West End. He ran a barbecue restaurant at 26th and Broadway, like right in the heart of the West End, right by this like, big parking lot that often turned into a party on weekends. It was really like, he was just known, everyone called him Yaya, and he was just known as like this like community figure. And he was very intentional in that, right? He like moved back to Louisville, opened this restaurant. It was like, he brought his family members in. He used it as like a place to sort of, mentor some of his family members and friends into you know trying to like be a role model for the community and um he was there um to the protest kicked off in louisville on a thursday night in late may it was like it's just a weekend of protests Amon and i were both out there and but all the protests were downtown at sixth and jefferson which is an intersection right downtown and 20 blocks away at 26 and broadway David McAtee, you know, by Sunday night of the protests, it was like just a normal Sunday night in the West End. Um, and at some point after protests quieted down downtown, the Louisville police 
and the National Guard, uh, there was a citywide curfew. And the only group they say that was left out after curfew was this big group partying out at 26th and Broadway. So they sent the police with the National Guard out to 26th and Broadway to break up what was essentially a curfew violation. Louisville police have said they received intelligence that protesters were planning to regroup in the West End. Um, but when they arrived, it was just like a Sunday night party. They started with pepper ball guns. They started, you know, sending people into their cars, dispersing the crowd. One officer, one LMPD officer, Katie Cruz, uh, was following, you know, people into McAtee, you know, people running into McAtee's restaurant. And um, she was firing pepper balls as they uh, entered the restaurant. Um, LMPD policy says to fire pepper balls at the ground. She was firing them. One of them hit McAtee's niece on the shoulder. McAtee leaned out of his restaurant and fired his gun um, twice. And LMPD and the National Guard switched from pepper balls to live ammunition. They shot and killed McAtee in his restaurant. Um, later determined, you know, four, two LMPD officers, two National Guardsmen fired bullets. The fatal shot came from a National Guardsman. Um, no one has been charged in that uh, case either, similar. Um, and like, that case just, I think, really came to symbolize so much of what brought us to this point, which is, you know, David McAtee was known not just for being a role model in the community, but for feeding the police, too. I mean, he was a good friend to many police officers. We talked to so many police officers who, like, loved him and really saw him as this bridge. And for so many years... Louisville had been saying they wanted to build bridges between the police and the black community. And David McAtee was that bridge. And, you know, they sent police and national guardsmen to his restaurant and he was killed. And it just really threw, you know, yeah, it just really escalated the protests a lot, I think, because it just represented something really heartbreaking to so many people in Louisville. Amina, you were reporting on that as the city reporter at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what you gleaned, what you were paying attention to? Yes, uh, as Eleanor mentioned, you know, it had it had been a long weekend um, of of covering these protests and um, just seeing the city sort of, you know, just just struggle to cope with with the reality of. Um, you know, the fallout of the Breonna Taylor shooting, um, you know, the, the, the first night of protests I was out that night, um, it was a Thursday before, and um, we had just, the city, the public had just heard um, the 911 call placed by Kenneth Walker, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, um, the, the call he placed after she was shot. He didn't know who had shot her. Um, and the anguish in his voice, I think, um, really pushed a lot of people out into the streets. Um, you know, fast forward a few days later, the, this incident that um, Eleanor just described happens, you know, after midnight, early, you know, early Monday morning. I remember waking up, um, you know, after several days of, of very little sleep and reporting on this and hearing, you know, police shot somebody, somebody died and thinking, my God, like, could that really have happened? Is that really what happened? And there were press conferences. The mayor was having like, God, it felt like 10 press conferences a day. I'm sure that wasn't the case. But um, you know, he came out, um, he was, he was crying. Mayor Greg Fisher was crying and everyone was upset that, you know, this happened. And, um, and then time is a little bit of a blur, but I believe it was the next day that he came back and he said, 
um, you know, I've been informed that there's no body camera footage of this incident. And so I've, I've uh, relieved Chief Steve Conrad, who had been chief of police here for, I think, eight years at that point. Um, that's a long time for any chief of police to, to be in their job. And it's, uh, it's, it's uh, pretty shocking that there is no body camera footage of that incident because um, there should have been. Um, because even though it was a National Guard member that killed him, you know, police were there and firing their weapons. That's exactly right. So we do have some footage of David McAtee being shot because there were security cameras inside his restaurant. And there is footage of um, police and the National Guard approaching his restaurant because there are police cameras up on poles in that neighborhood because there are a lot of police cameras in that neighborhood. Um, and there is a Facebook Live video of someone somewhere like across the street, Eleanor probably can say exactly where, um, uh, who happened to be live streaming the party at the moment that, that law enforcement showed up. But, but the point I really want to make here is, um, is about body cameras. And the fact that the, the reason, for me at least, that the lack of body camera footage in this, in this instance was so striking and so shocking was that the officers who raided Brianna Taylor's apartment three months prior also were not using body cameras. Um, and, and this seems to raise the question of whether even if reforms get put in place, if they make a difference, if they aren't actually followed. Well, after, um, forgive me because I don't remember the exact timing of this, but I believe it was before the protests began, but after the Breonna Taylor case had reached sort of national attention. Mayor Greg Fisher said, you know, we're changing policies, we're going to Text, um, which was, I think did so because they thought there to someone, um, it seems like Amina is breaking up on us. We're going to hopefully get a slightly better connection from her in a moment. In the meantime, Eleanor, I'm wondering if you can talk about how body cameras factor into 21st century policing, the concept of 21st century policing, especially here in Louisville. Yeah, absolutely. Claire, I'm back. Yeah. Um, sorry, Amna, do you want to wrap that up? I didn't. I don't mean to. Okay. No, no. I was. I was just. I was just going to say that there wasn't. There has been a change in that body cameras are not required. But your point about you know the effectiveness of that and the use of that is interesting. Um, and, and if I could just say one more thing, um, please, Eleanor, I hope no, I'm not please. stealing your point, but um, you know, we've seen some resolutions in other cases recently, notably, um, you know, the, the George Floyd case and the Ahmaud Arbery case and the difference between those and the Breonna Taylor case is video evidence. Now it's not, you know, it's not, necessarily body camera video evidence, but it is video evidence. And um, as, as many of you who are listening may know, the only charges um, related to the Breonna Taylor case were for a police officer who fired, you know, in, in the midst of firing bullets into her apartment, fired some into a neighboring apartment and was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment. No one was charged for her killing. So anyway, I just wanted to highlight the importance of video evidence in these types of cases. I, yeah, I and mean, I appreciate you raising that because I think that's so on the nose. And so, I mean, uh, one of the things that I think is really marking this like era that we live in right now, that's, you know, not just starting with the Michael Brown case in Ferguson, but, you know, 
uh, I think one of the major changes in the last decade to policing has been the advent of body cameras and the fact that like more and more uh, we have greater insight into what is happening in you know, just police activity in general. I think historically, uh, we as the media, the public have had to, or have chosen to, in some cases, just take the police's word for what's um, happened in some of these incidents. And so body camera, I think, has been like one of the most impactful changes to policing. It's not really my opinion. That's the opinion of a lot of experts that I've talked to as well. Um, And that's why body cameras were a big part of, you know, body cameras and technology broadly were a big part of 21st century policing. Um, and it was in 2016 that Louisville said publicly at a press conference that they had outfitted every single police officer with a body camera. And at that time, they said, you know, with the exception of two units that we're going to get those tied up. But every unit has body cameras. Every officer has a body camera. It was a huge push for transparency. And they specifically said, you know, including some of, you know, their very high profile um, uh, more known as more aggressive traffic stop units that had attracted some controversy. They said, you know, they gave those officers body cameras too. And it was one of those units that uh, went and served the search warrant of Breonna Taylor's house and um, her apartment and were not wearing body cameras. And so once again, we saw the mayor come out and make a promise that they'd made five years prior when he said, you know, every member of this unit will be equipped with a body camera. So I think the body cameras, again, are sort of a very powerful example of what the city has promised and what they are once again promising. When we're talking about that cyclical nature of of what's happened with the LMPD and communities here in Louisville, I'm I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the Department of Justice investigation into uh, whether the LMPD is a pattern or a practice of violating civil rights of its citizens. What do we know about that so far, Amina? That's um, that's a good question. It's an it's an ongoing investigation, and as with you know many government investigations, we may not know exactly what it um, what it encompasses until we know what it encompasses until they tell us. Um, what we do know right now is that they're looking, the, the DOJ is looking at basically everything that LMPD does. Um, they want to know whether LMPD um, routinely violates people's civil rights, whether they use excessive force, um, and, and other questions sort of in that vein. Um, the issue that um, you know the, the city and the department are, are um, sort of focused on is that if the DOJ finds that LMPD does have a pattern or practice of violating rights, they'll likely have to undergo a costly and time-consuming uh, time, time consent decree. Um, that's, a, that's a really likely outcome because every DOJ investigation in the last decade has resulted in federal oversight of the police department through a consent decree. Um, now, there's... There is something um, to note here, which is that um, it's under the Biden administration and under, you know, Attorney General Merrick Garland that this investigation came to be. There was um, sort of the expectation that it would not have happened under the Trump administration because they they really moved away from consent decrees of police departments. So um, just that's a timing note. But um, bringing it back to Louisville, you know, they're already starting to implement or um consider implementing is perhaps a, a safer way to say it some policing reforms that were um that were uh recommended in that hillard heights report that i mentioned earlier in the conversation um the outside audit that the city commissioned last year 
Um, but the expectation, according to some city officials, is that fully, um, fully undergoing the Department of Justice reforms that uh, that they expect could cost Louisville up to ten million dollars a year. And I will just say, Amina, if we're talking about um, consent decrees, I mean. One of the things, again, and like, I, you know, I keep going back to the idea of this like cyclical nature of things, but one of the ideas of 21st century policing was like, let's help police departments reform themselves before we get to a crisis point. So this was after Ferguson. This was after a couple of other, I believe it was after Baltimore had been put under a consent decree after the death of Freddie Gray. And it just felt like we can't just like wait for cities to get to, we can't wait for a city to kill someone protests break out, they're in the national spotlight, and then we find out there's a problem. So we go in and we consent decree them. There has to be a better way. And so 21st century policing was like this idea that we'll give you the tools to basically, I mean, this is a oversimplification, but like consent decree yourself, fix it yourself. Don't cost $10 million. Do it before protests, before you kill anyone. Let's like all do this together. And I, so I think in so many ways, the fact that Louisville has gone from this sort of uh, 21st century policing uh, model that they were pro- proclaiming themselves to be to a city that could potentially be facing a consent decree is, you know, I think many people feel like that's just sort of the final nail in the coffin for this idea that police departments can proactively reform themselves. If you're just joining us, we are talking about 21st century policing. More specifically, we're talking about police in Louisville, Kentucky. Eleanor Klibanoff is the host and reporter of DIG, which looks into 21st century policing here in Louisville. You can join the conversation if you like by touching the speaker button in the bottom left of the spaces window. Right now, we are going to hear from Tiffany. Tiffany, let us unmute you and we'll see if we can get you in here. Tiffany? Yes. Would you like to share your comment with us? Yeah, sorry. I was I was finding my remote so I can mute the TV. Sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> um, um, I have a question. So a part of like reforming or helping to reform, you know, um the system in its entirety is um a lot of the burden can be placed on some of the burden can be placed on the media. And I'm wondering, um, if anyone, you know, can touch on it or agree with me or give me their side. For example, with the most recent shooting in Michigan, the um, some media outlets, they were reporting on it, on it and they used his, they used the shooter's um, angelic childhood photos, you know, to place in the story. Uh, they were, t- you know, but if, if in that, if there was a, if it was a black man that done that or a black kid, they would find the worst pictures of him to post in the store, in the article about the, uh, you know, about the tragedy and tying into the same point. Um, we all know what happened. The first hand account of the George Floyd situation um, uh, before the video went viral, the, all the videos went viral of him being murdered. Um, the police account of that situation was far different than what we all saw in that video. And, but the media saw that and they ran with it. So, a part of the system, a part of, you know, helping the system get a little bit better, you know, can be, can the media, you know, not be, you know, second guess, maybe start second guessing the firsthand account they get from the police. And also when it comes to 
when you're making, when you're writing a story about, you know, an African-American male or, or female, um, don't pick the worst picture that has ever been taken of them. Um, you know, uh, it even happened to Trayvon Martin, I believe, if I recall correctly. They took a picture of him with um, with a gold tooth in his mouth. Um, and I think him smoking weed when that what when that trial happened. But I don't know. I don't think I'm. I might not be articulating my point. No, I think you're articulating it amazingly. It's the question of of what the media has, the culpability that we have um, in these narratives. And I, you know, Amina spoke briefly earlier, especially about taking police accounts at face value and how uh, cameras, body cameras, change that. Eleanor, what did you think about what Ellen, what uh, Tiffany just just shared with us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very spot on, Tiffany, and I really appreciate you raising it because I think. Um, you know, to the media often has a has a tendency to you know point the finger um, at everyone else and not like look as critically as we can at our own role in all of this. Um, and I do think, like, I feel this as well. Like when we talk about the cyclical nature of things, it feels like we often are having the same conversation again and again um, about the media as well. You know, what, you know, what photos do we choose? How do we talk about, um, like you said, whether it be a school shooting, whether it be um, a police shooting? And, um, you know, I think one of the like, sort of fascinating things we saw in Louisville this summer was the real rise of citizen live streamers, where, you know, the media, the reporters, you know, from, you know, traditional news outlets were out there covering the protests, but so were, you know, people with an iPhone and, a, you know, and a tripod, and they were covering at least, you know, they were, had a, a lot more stamina than we did often. Um, and those accounts were, you know, really powerful to see from people who are impacted by this. I will also just say, like, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, I am a white woman reporting on these issues about policing and affecting the West End of Louisville. These are, you know, we are, that's a thing I think we talk about a lot in our news organization, at least, which is, you know, the diversity of who's telling these stories and who gets to tell these stories and how we can tell these stories in ways that are not just extractive so i think it's it's a conversation that's happening in the media right now and i hope it's like not a conversation we pick up again in three years and six years and nine years um i'm gonna do you have anything else on that i have so many thoughts on that <laughs> and um i'll, I'll echo, echo um your appreciation for tiffany's for tiffany's question um you know on a personal note uh i am a, a brown woman who often sees people um, who look like me and who are named like me reflected in media reports as terrorists. And so I'm very, very sensitive to the issue that you're talking about um, and, and you know, feel personally that it's important to be sensitive to that, whether um, you're a person who experiences that the way that Tiffany does or the way that I do, um, or, or if you don't, you should still care. Um, on a more sort of concrete note, though, um, I, I'd like to tell you a little bit about a, a change that I've made as a journalist, um, you know, through through my experience reporting on LMPD um, that I hope others would would take sort of in the spirit that it's meant, which is that, um, you know, when we talk about holding, um, you know, institutions like the police accountable, that also means, um, you know, understanding that the way they present things may not may not be uh, the way that things are, right? Uh, the example that comes to mind is that in the initial sort of police narrative about the Breonna Taylor um, 
shooting, uh, they portrayed her as a suspect. That was the word that they used. Um, she was she was not a suspect. She was named in the search warrant. Um, her address was on the search warrant, but she was not a suspect of the narcotics investigation. She was not armed, um, and she did not fire a weapon that night. So, um, you know, a concerning use of that term that only really was um, was questioned and corrected because of what that case became. Um, so this is a long way of introducing the fact that now when we cover shootings, um, we have a policy of covering every time um, a Louisville police officer shoots anyone, um, we avoid the word suspect. Um, you know, if, if, we, if we can prove that the person is a suspect or if we can um, corroborate that or, or, um, or um, sort of quantify it, um, then fine. Uh, but based on the initial police narrative or report that tends to have very few details and often doesn't include certain names and that sorts of thing, um, yeah, that's not, that's not a word we use off the bat anymore reflexively. So um, just, just a small example of, of a way that media, I think, can, can learn and change. And I hope um, we'll see more of those types of evolutions uh, as we continue to get smarter and more sensitive. Um, I'll, I'll hand it back to Claire now. So we are just about out of time, but I do want to talk to you guys. You know, it, it's been about a year, um, a year plus since the protests have wrapped up. How are people in Louisville talking about, feeling about, thinking about police? What sort of change have we seen? And and what I guess what's the mood, for lack of a better term? Eleanor? Yeah, I mean, I will say that, like, uh, it feels like, I, I think... Louisville right now feels like a city where like everyone in the city, no matter who you are or where you live or your race or your income level has been forced to sort of come face to face with something that a lot of people in the city already knew, which is that, uh, you know, this is a really segregated city. It's a city that has a huge chasm of distrust between police and communities of color. It is a city where, you know, the zip code you live in and the color of your skin has a huge impact on everything from your life expectancy to what's likely to happen if you get pulled over by the police um, or if you call the police uh, to report a crime. So in some ways, it feels like, wow, the city has woken up and things are, you know, have changed and we're, we're never going to go back to the way it was. And Yet, if you talk to a lot of the people I've interviewed for DIG who have been doing this for years and decades and longer in some cases, it feels like here we are again. And so I think, you know, Louisville's in a very interesting moment right now. 2022 is a big mayoral race. Um, with uh, We've had the same mayor for, by the time he leaves office, 12 years. Um, and we're going to see what happens in Louisville. I think, you know, we interviewed the mayor for the podcast and he said, you know, this is Louisville's chance once again to be a model city to fix things and show the rest of the nation that it's possible. I think the question stands, you know, what is Louisville going to be a model for? Eleanor Klebanoff, the host and reporter of Dig. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I also want to thank Amina Alahi, the city editor and former city reporter at Louisville Public Media, and Kate Howard, the head of the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. We've been talking about 20th, 21st century policing and more specifically the podcast. 
Dig. What's next for policing in cities like Louisville? If you want to listen to Dig, you can find a link at the top of this conversation. You can also find a way to support our work here at Louisville Public Media and the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. Thank you to everyone who listened today. And special thanks to Tiffany and Raphael who participated in the conversation. We're so thankful to everyone who takes the time to learn a little bit more about policing and its impact on cities like Louisville. With that, I'll hand it back to NPR. Hey, thank you so much. I also, we also have, and forgive my my afternoon brain, we also have a link up at the top to catch uh, Amina's podcast here today, which is also from Louisville. Um, so you can snag all of those and I am just vamping for a second so you can make your way up to the top before I close out this conversation. But as always, I am unendingly grateful for all of you um, and for all of your time and your reporting. Thank you all so much. And we have one more, one more space coming up today. We might have, I think, I think it's just one. Uh,